Hi there and welcome to another OSLA podcast. My name's Todd Fraser. Like its adult cousin, paediatric sepsis has been searching for effective treatment options for decades. In recent years, the concept of metabolic resuscitation has been explored in the adult sphere, but what of it in children? Luren Schlappback and Sainath Raman are paediatric intensivists and sepsis researchers who are aiming to answer this question. Luren, Sai, welcome to the podcast. Welcome and thank you very much for having us today, Todd. Thank you, Todd. Great to talk to you. I'd just like to start by trying to paint a picture of the backdrop of paediatric sepsis on a global scale. Where, where do we currently sit with sepsis in children? So based on the Global Burden of Disease report on sepsis, which was for the first time actually made available a year ago, the numbers of children affected worldwide with sepsis is way higher than what we had previously estimated. And the most uh, recent estimates you know, paint a picture that about 50% of the global sepsis burden affects children less than 18 years of age. Um, the majority of them newborns and infants, but still, you know, there's a high number of, of, of all pediatric age groups affected. And tragically as well, globally, this leads to an estimated about 3 million deaths every year. So sepsis is a major cause of death in children around the world. And hence, there is an imperative, you know, need for all of us to, to work towards better interventions in that field. And it, of course, it would be desirable to have interventions which are of a low cost and high safety profile so that such could be applied to children affected by sepsis in different areas of the world. Now, there's been a lot of focus in recent years on research in sepsis in adults. Where is Where are things placed with research into interventions for sepsis in the paediatric side? So research, I think, um, over the years has focused on several stages, so to speak, of um, sepsis. So there is, of course, work being done in the community and public engagement and community awareness. That's probably still a big focus and should remain a focus. While the child presents to the hospital and to an emergency department across the world, the focus then shifts to what happens to that child. How is the child managed right at the outset? So a recognition and early management is the four key where we are looking at. That's where most of the research has been um, driven. And quite a lot of it is quality improvement work as well, but research certainly focuses on that. Um, and going on from that are interventions, i.e. medications perhaps, which then modify the course of illness for that particular child. And that's, that's where the uh, play out is. So just going into a bit more detail there would be, so how do you recognize a child? So do you have early diagnostics capabilities, which have been addressed and numerous other tech, uh, commercially based as well as um, research-based technologies are out there that are being validated or tested uh, to pick up whether it's a bacterial infection, it's whether a viral infection, which has then precipitated this sepsis episode. And then coming on to treatment there or therapies that we can give, um, fluid has been a cornerstone of sepsis management. And so there's been people looking at whether less fluid, more fluid, aggressive fluids, several nuances of fluid management has been looked at. And then the third part, which is where Lorraine and I have focused our interests on is how can we 
add further interventions to the bedrock of sepsis management, which is antibiotics and fluids, um, which can then change the course. And here's where we have looked at vitamin C in a cocktail of thiamine and steroids as potential intervention. The, I think what's important to highlight here as well is that the last large RCT in pediatric sepsis, which tested a novel intervention, dates back to the RESOLVE trial um, led in the UK and, and some other units uh, more than 10 years ago. And when this trial on activated protein C actually did not lead to measurable benefit, the interest of as well of, of pharmaceutical companies, you know, to 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 invest in pediatric sepsis trials, you know, was greatly diminished. And what we've seen in the last 10, 15 years was a lot of small trials that looked at which inotrope to use, as I mentioned, how much fluid to use. So we use steroids. Most of these were relatively small, you know, between 50 and 200 patients. Um, and the only really large interventional trial with children with life-threatening infection was the, um, the feast study on fluids in Africa. And hence, we're now nowadays we're really in a setting where um, for children that do not respond to the initial sepsis resuscitation bundle, um, for which actually there's good observational evidence that, that it makes difference, such as we've seen from New York. But for these children that do not respond to that bundle, what do we do then? And I think that's a that's a very common challenge for us as, as intensivists here um, in Australia, but in fact, actually everywhere around the world. And the evidence gets really relatively scarce once you reach, reach that point. Just to address that again for a moment, what do you think the reasons are for the lack of evidence or the lack of enthusiasm in research in this particular area are? Is it something that's novel to, sorry, uh, exclusive to paediatrics or is it um, novel therapies across the, the spectrum of sepsis, do you think? So it's a good question. The first point is, and that's extremely encouraging, that in the last um, 12 months, actually two very large trials have started. Um, the prompt bolus study in the US, which is looking at crystallates, so balanced fluids versus versus uh, normal saline in pediatric sepsis resuscitation. And um, the SHAPES trial, you know, which is which is looking at the use of hydrocortisone in children with septic shock. Both trials will will actually recruit a very large number of patients and will certainly you know, provide evidence for you know, very common practice. And so I do think there's a realization that sepsis in children is important that we need high grade high grade evidence actually to, to inform what we do. And with this, I do hope that there is as well a, um, a new interest in testing novel interventions. Um, what has appealed um, in terms of you know using this intervention here was that he's actually really very easily applicable and he has a high safety profile and maybe so i can uh, discuss a bit more um why we're actually certainly con uh, convinced that the safety profile is as high as we think so um we're talking about the respond trial today which is focusing on hat therapy can you just outline quickly what that is and how it may, in theory, uh, intervene in sepsis and improve outcomes? So the, the project or the trial respond is resuscitation in pediatric sepsis using hydrocortisone, vitamin C, and thiamine as a cocktail in a randomized uh, controlled trial format. So that's the trial. 
And why do we think each of these might work and might not work? Hydrocortisone has been used for decades uh, in sepsis. Uh, unfortunately, the, un, unless the SHIPS trial might show us some evidence, but there has not been any trial-based evidence in pediatric sepsis that hydrocortisone works or not. Most clinicians would argue that when they're the backs against the wall, they would reach out for hydrocortisone. So then vitamin C and thiamine have been brought into the fore perhaps in the last five years from Merrick paper, which was a pre-post uh, cohort study, and following on from that, a pediatric study as well, which then asks or hypothesizes that the vitamin C antioxidant effect is synergistic and actually might even augment the function of hydrocortisone. And so that's where the three drugs together might actually work better than each in itself, individually, perhaps. So that, of course, is still a hypothesis and that needs to be um, trialed to be either shown that it works or not. Now, there's um, certainly people who swear by the HAT therapy in the adult world to the point of sometimes uh, suggesting that randomised controls aren't required. Unfortunately, the evidence thus far through trials such as the Vitamins trial and Victor's trial have been yet to show uh, conclusive benefit. Where does the evidence base lie in paediatrics and possibly more broadly across the spectrum? I think the um, HAT therapy is a very very good example of the risks of embarking on a new practice without firm evidence. Um, and, you know, subsequent to extremely promising initial results based on a low quality study design, um, you know, this has led to change of practice in, by many clinicians, in particularly, you know, in, in, in North America. Uh, more in adults so than in children, but as well, we're aware that that you know many children have been treated with head therapy, and the the results of the RCTs have actually shown that that this is not not as valid as it was was put forward in the sense of that other than the one paper which showed a mortality benefit, all other RCTs that have been published have not shown a mortality benefit nor benefit on you know survival free of organ dysfunction, for example. And hence, of course, the key question for us was, is it actually justifiable to say, let's invest more in, the, in, in this intervention in children? And um, for us, there's a number of key arguments that we considered. First of all, the, um, there is a lack of pediatric RCT data. We have just finished the RESPOND pilot, which used essentially the same dosage per kilo as the MARC study or had therapy used. Um, there was a pilot done in Australia, New Zealand, pediatric intensive care units, which enrolled 60 patients. And what we've observed was that the study protocol was very doable um, and that the parents were extremely keen actually to have their children enrolled in such a trial. Of, um, we cannot comment yet on the primary outcomes and secondary outcomes in detail because analyses are just being conducted as we speak. But it really showed us that actually parents want such a study to be done. The consent rate now is very high. Um, and hence, I think this is something we could do, parents want it, and there is a need for better interventions in that field. So the second point then is, well, could it be that children are more susceptible to have a benefit from such an intervention, even if adults are not. Again, the only data to refer to are, are um, 
is, is a propensity match study from Eric Wald from St. Louis Children's in Chicago, which reported a, a clear mortality benefit. Um, this hints that there may be a signal in children, but you know, again, it is it is not a study, it is not a what you would call high-grade evidence, but still there is a signal that we should follow on. The third point, and I think that's that's really key, is that children have different susceptibilities to disease severity. Sepsis in children is much more of a fulminant disease. You know, 50% of children that die in Australian New Zealand pediatric intensive care units due to sepsis, if they have been previously well, they die within within 50, uh, within within the first two days. So any intervention that we need has to, to work really quickly. And um, hence, the, the other aspect is as well that children globally may be more subject to nutritional you know, deficiencies. And hence, it could be possible that, that um, vitamin, uh, vitamin-based resuscitation could play a big, big role. We have ourselves uh, measured vitamin C levels in critically in children, and there's actually a very strong association with disease severity. So these are in principle considerations, which, which in our view imply that it is worth doing such a trial in children. The question then actually is how to do a trial in terms of design about you know, timing of giving, giving the, 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 the drugs and dosing. And maybe Sai can comment a bit on, on the approach we've chosen. Yeah, thanks, Lauren. I think the key points, just to summarize, was children are different the way they respond to sepsis. They die quicker, it would seem, certainly what from the data we have seen. And in, in the in the low socioeconomic status or in the, the low resource limited settings, perhaps there is nutritional deficiency as well, especially in the children. So that's the second bit. And then, of course, they are the way they respond to therapies itself. So the way we have gone about doing that is, firstly, we have... We adopt from the adult trial model in that we now have a three-arm trial that we have set up. This is the first time where we would be able to actually tease out if hydrocortisone in itself is delivering a benefit and perhaps the combination of vitamin C and thiamine are different. So delineation of the effect of each of those drugs, perhaps not, not the combination of vitamin C and thiamine, they'll still be within one arm. So that's the difference of the, the, our trial, which is probably different. It is different to all the adult trials that have been done till date. Um, so that's number one. And the second thing which we have learned more iteratively from what we have learned from Australia, New Zealand, and Bellomo's group and some animal studies as well, is the dose of vitamin C is probably equally relevant, i.e. what we chose to use in the pilot study. And since then, we have actually looked for evidence when we've done a systematic review to look at what is the safety profile of using high-dose vitamin C. And we have shown in pediatrics that at least reported literature-wise, there's not much harm that has been reported. And the safety profile seems appropriately uh, adequate for us to use a high dose strategy for in our trial. So those are the two key components of our study, which is different to adults and all the studies that have been done till date in uh, HAT therapy. Um, I may just add a, a third point as well, which is very relevant, which is the timing of the intervention. If you look at, for example, the adrenal study, which was worldwide, you know, the the largest RCT ever done in, in sepsis led by NZCTG. The time until the intervention starts in many patients, you know, is, is around 12 hours. 
um, after after having come to ICU, after having been sick. You know, in some patients, it's even you know, it's even more than that. And a lot of sepsis trials actually do have timeframes. You know, which which around the twelve hour point. You know, even the, the vitamin C trials until patients get recruited. If you look at pediatric sepsis mortality after 12 hours, there's a lot of children already dead or, or actually are very close to dying. And hence, in order to enroll children as early as possible, we changed inclusion time point as well. We said this, if a child either comes into ICU on a high amount of inotropes, such as a vasopressor inotropic score of 10 or greater, or if the patient has had at least one hour of inotropes, which you know sometimes is about the time you need as an intensivist to, you know, to to really know what's happening in your patient. Then you can go straight onto the trial, including as well the use of consent to continue. And hence, of course, we do hope that with that design we can enroll children as early as possible after admission to the ICU. And I think it's worth highlighting here that one of the special developments about this trial, in my views as well how it's been informed by work done in the adults. So already the RESPOND pilot trial was actually created because Rinaldo Belomo approached us as pediatricians and said, this, would you be keen actually to, to, to participate in that study? And we said, look, we can't participate in vitamin study as, as it stands, but we could design a, a pediatric parallel pilot to, to run this. And I mean, it's it just it's just a testimony of the vision and, and inclusiveness of Rinaldo to have invited us to this and to have enabled actually that, that proposal for the response pilot study, which as mentioned, you know, has, has been just recently completed. And as well, Rinaldo has been actually absolutely keen to exchange um, with him and, and his lab to know actually the you know the, the recent insights from some of his uh, some of the animal models they've run um, to, to inform as well the design of that full trial. And I think to thinking of ahead in the future, it would be extremely desirable that pediatric trial design sort of either runs almost in parallel to adult trial design or is informed by, you know, designs of adult trials that have been recently completed, because I think such would immensely gain, um, gains, allow to gain speed, let's say, in, in producing pediatric evidence. So I fair to say this isn't your first rodeo, as it were. Um, what are some of the challenges that uh, researchers in pediatric sepsis face in terms of trial design that perhaps their adult counterparts don't? Um, that's a that's a good point. I think the the key things for um, me when I can try and consent a family for participating in a trial is the stress that they are in when their child is significantly unwell on an intensive care unit. And while it's not dissimilar to an adult patient and their family are equally stressed, but there is this increased uh, parental and family dimension. There may be siblings around. So there is a significantly different interaction that we have. And, and therefore, therein lies the first, first obstacle, so to speak, that we need to surmount. And we have, we have done that over the years, and it's, it's gradually changing in that we have consent to continue while we leave the family alone, just while they are in the acutest phase of illness, and then we approach them slightly late. So that's the first bit I find. The second bit is while in adult practice, the adult physician could go and say, we have all this evidence to back us doing the study, where in pediatrics, our evidence is always poor or scarce. So 
We then have to go by saying, look, all this evidence is in adult plan while we don't have much else. So then the first question they ask is then, why are you doing it in kids? But the answer to that, unfortunately, it's a self-fulfilling prophecy, i.e. we don't have evidence and therefore we need to do it. So that's the second bit which we find, which I personally find is the most common um, thing that I have to surmount when I uh, reach out to families. And, and the third bit, which I'll let Lorraine add to in a minute, is that the long-term outcomes which children have or the morbidity that they may have, what does this intervention that their child is having right this moment going to do to how they are in the long term? No one knows and no one can tell them. And so when the question comes to me as a clinician, what does it mean in the long term? While in truth, self and in my conscience, I can tell them that, I don't think there is a long-term outcome effect. I don't know the true answer to that. And that's the honest answer that I give uh, children and families. So those are the key things that I find are different. Um, I'll leave it for Lauren to add to that. Yeah, I think I can only second what, what Sai has said. The I think it's a fact that when I train in pediatrics and even in the beginning of pediatric ICU, although evidence-based medicine was a clear term that people said this, this is what we should base decisions on. Fact was that most of the bits we've been trained on had not much to do with evidence. And fact was that then throughout my training, it was actually, I've never actually been exposed to a patient getting enrolled on an RCT, neither in pediatrics nor when I did my ICU training. And so for me, it was actually a revelation when I came to Australia to, to see that it is best clinical practice to enroll patients in RCTs. And this was clearly, you know, sort of lift by the CTG. And, but the pediatric study group, of course, actually then tried to follow that, that journey. And in the last um, five years, the, the PSG, thanks to some, some large studies and some fantastic collaborations, actually has shifted really that goalpost. And doing RCTs is slowly becoming more of standard practice as well for critically Ill, Ill, Ill children. And in that perspective, I think it's absolutely essential to have early career researchers like Sai that, that says, you know, this is key for, for, for the quality of care I do for my, you know, for my career as well. But actually, this is for the great good that we need to make sure children come on to such trials. And to a certain degree, I think that's actually sort of the... the uh, almost like a sentinel effect that we hope to have here. The challenge is, I think, to do sepsis research in children, you know, traditionally have often been considered it's just in the too hard box. And one aspect in the past, which was mentioned, was as well, well, children are not that sick. So, you know, the mortality is much lower. So, you know, you can't, it's not going to work. But fact is, the mortality in, in pediatric intensive care with septic shock, if you're inotropes, um, is depending on where you work, but it's, it's around the 15%. So one in six children in high-income countries ending up in ICU with septic shock needing inotropes will die. That is actually quite a lot. You know, this is not so far off the mortality rates in adults with septic shock in good units, you know, which have in some units dropped to, to sort of a similar ballpark. Um, so we're talking actually something that's, that is very severe, but the other point is an adult that comes into ICU with septic shock, you know, on average has, has an age which is somewhere between, you know, 60 and, and 80 years. 
The average child that comes to IC with septic shock is less than five years of age. So this child has eight years ahead to live. This child is expected one day, you know, to have a job, to have a family, to pay taxes, you know, to sort of create all of that multiplicator effect. And so the impact on septic survivors in children is, is something that we're only about to start to understand. And this was one of the reasons why we said this, this trial must um, include as well a follow-up package where we actually aim not to only assess the quality of, of life, but we assess, we, we, we assess by questionnaires, by proxies, well, you know, measures of the functional status, cognitive ability, adaptive skills. And by such, of course, we do hope to, to, to generate more evidence, not just on the short-term effects on any intervention, as well on, on long-term effects, which... SI has put, you know, for a family, you know, or remain some of the key outcomes they care about. Just in the last few minutes, tell us a little bit about RESPOND, what, um, what patient groups are being included, what the intervention is, and what you'll be measuring. So RESPOND will include any child who's in an intensive care environment suspected of sepsis and is on inotropes for more than one hour. Um, we have three arms. The first arm will have vitamin C, thiamine, and hydrocortisone. The second would have hydrocortisone, and the third would be a standard arm. Those would be a randomized uh, controlled trial. Um, the key outcomes that we aim to show or investigate is whether this intervention would change PQ-free survival in children. And the second bit which we want to focus on is how do they do once they leave PICU. So we will be focusing on their functional assessment in a, a raft of uh, assessment measures that we are going to use at 28 days and at six months. So those will be the key components of the study for the children. And then we have a biobanking component, which will then help us look at novel therapies, novel biomarkers in time and also validate other biomarkers. Whereabouts is Respond up to in terms of planning? What uh, At what point are you uh, looking to start recruitment and all of those sorts of things? Thanks, Doc. The Respond is nearly there. I'm quite excited. So we have collaboration across seven sites across Australia and New Zealand, and all the sites are nearly ready to go. Um, here in Queensland Children's Hospital, we hope to go live in the next week which would be quite exciting times for us here. Um, but other sites will follow suit fairly uh, shortly after that. And are you looking for other sites to become involved over the course of the project? Uh, in time, yes. So the first step would be to set it up and um, demonstrate that we can run it, which we have shown in the pilot phase, but also in the full trial. And then uh, Loren is taking it up at the world stage, which I will let him chip into that bit. I think one, one of the challenges in pediatric sepsis is that overall numbers per unit are lower than in adults. And hence, actually, to, to reach the desired size, it's important you know, to, to have international units as well joining this trial, in addition to the NZX PSG sites. Um, and one of our intentions here was as well to, again, you know, informed by the vitamins trial as well, to use a collaboration with units in, in Brazil for this trial. You know, the units there, they, they are exposed to a very sick patient you know, cohort. They see large numbers of patients, yet the interventions they use you know, are about 90% are the same interventions that we use in Australia and New Zealand. And um, Brazil has, thanks to work done by Flavia Machado and you know, Daniela de Souza and others, has 
has actually a very high interest in in research and quality improvement in sepsis. So um, the units in Brazil have been very good partners so far in the preparation and, you know, hoping that we can achieve the the necessary regulatory approvals, um, we we hope to be able to recruit together with them um, as of at least next year. I would like to highlight here as well that actually the first early goal-directed RCT in children was actually published in Brazil. This was a study from from Claudio de Oliveira um, in the Sao Paulo unit, which actually for the first time essentially tried to to model that rivers uh, river study, which really had changed the landscape in adult medicine, and I think this is another opportunity to sort of you know connect with past research and and make sure we can have um, a collaboration which which has implications as well for the generalizability of findings. As said, is you know most most interventions that we use in sepsis are the same. For ICUs working in very different healthcare settings. And in fact, it has been one of the aspirations of the Surviving Sepsis Campaign guidelines that we published last year to make sure these are actually applicable to, to intensivists around the world. But the research generated actually so far has always been restricted to certain you know, North American or high-income units where you know very few low-income settings studies, such as the FEAST trial. And hence, it would actually be needed that we do a study which runs over different healthcare settings under different conditions to really test an intervention. If you want to be sure, you know, what's the potential of that intervention in terms of generalization. If there are units out there or people who are listening who would be interested in participating, how do they go about uh, getting in touch with you? Um, they can get in touch with us right through our email. Both of us are fairly responsive to our emails. So I I'm available at Sainath, S-A-I-N-A-T-H dot Raman, R-A-M-A-N, at uq.edu.au. We'll also probably put links to the R emails on your podcast. Yeah, my email is l.schlapbach at uq.edu.au. Very happy to receive contacts, yeah. Lauren, so congratulations on getting the trial to this point. It is, as you say, very exciting to be about to embark on such a journey. And we wish you the very best. And thanks for joining us on the podcast. Thank you very much, Todd. Thank you, Todd. It's been a pleasure. Thanks for joining me on the podcast today. Get access to all our podcast interviews, as well as hundreds of modules, journal reviews, quizzes and articles by downloading our free app. Search for My Osler wherever you get your apps or visit our website at oslocommunity.com.